Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid, for that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, and the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry out. And I said, What shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arm, and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Our primary reading this morning comes from the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. Would you listen now for the Lord? Do you see what this means? All these pioneers who blazed the way, these veterans cheering us on, it means we better get on with it. Strip down, start running, and never quit. No extra spiritual fat. No parasitic sins. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God, he could put up with anything along the way. Cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor right alongside God. When you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item. That long litany of hostility he plowed through, that will shoot adrenaline into your souls. In this all-out match against sin, others have suffered far worse than you. To say nothing of what Jesus went through, all that bloodshed. So don't feel sorry for yourselves. Or have you forgotten how good parents treat children, that God regards you as his children? My dear child, don't shrug off God's discipline, but don't be crushed by it either. It's the child he loves that he disciplines. The child he embraces, he also corrects. God is educating you. That's why you must never drop out. He's treating you as dear children. The trouble you're in isn't punishment. It's training. The normal experience of children. Only irresponsible parents leave their children to fend for themselves. Would you prefer an irresponsible God? We respect our own parents for training and not spoiling us. So why not embrace God's training so that we can truly live? While we were children, our parents did what seemed best to them. But God is doing what is best for us, training us to live God's holy best. At the time, discipline isn't much fun. It always feels like it's going against the grain. Later, of course, it pays off big time. For it is the well-trained who find themselves mature in their relationship with God. So don't sit around on your hands. No more dragging your feet. Clear the path for long-distance runners so no one will trip and fall, so no one will step in a hole and sprain an ankle. Help each other out and run for it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. British runner and missionary Eric Little said these words. He said, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Little won a gold medal in the 400-meter run and a bronze medal in the 200-meter run in the Paris Olympics in 1924. 
He famously refused to run his preferred race, the 100 meter, because it was held on a Sunday, and he firmly wanted to keep the day of rest. A year after winning gold at the Olympics, he returned to China, where his parents had been missionaries, and he took a missionary teaching position. Sadly, 20 years later, he died in a Japanese internment camp. Little knew what it meant to fully and beautifully run a literal race, and the metaphorical race of faith. He's an example of someone who endured and did not give up. What Little is most remembered for is his integrity and how he felt the pleasure of God as he ran. If you've seen the film *Chariots of Fire*, you've seen the actor's portrayal of Little with his head thrown back, his mouth slightly open, reveling in the pleasure of God and letting that fuel him to the finish line. The author of Hebrews compares the Christian life to a race that we must complete. She encourages her audience to keep going, even when they were not sure that they could take another step. Listen to the first three verses of chapter 12 as the NIV translates them. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Two weeks ago, we looked at chapter 11, which highlighted the imperfect faith of those who have gone before us in the race—a faith that, although imperfect, was honored and remembered by God. Those stories in chapter 11 remind us that we can be encouraged in our own struggles. That even a mustard seed-sized amount of faith can be enough. The broken heroes of faith of Hebrews 11 they spur us on, and as chapter 12 says, they're a great cloud of witnesses for us. There's this sense that they are cheering us on as we run. The preacher writing Hebrews uses their example to exhort us to throw off what could hinder our running and to learn from Jesus, who endured great suffering, because even greater joy was ahead. The author of Hebrews, who I will continue to take the position, is Priscilla. She is addressing a weary community. As we've learned, the people listening to the reading of this sermon called Hebrews were part of a persecuted group of believers. They were surrounded by opposition, oppression, and very real danger. They were discriminated against. They were hated. They were seen as suspicious, and they were faced with the very real possibility of one day making a choice: to save their own lives and deny their faith, or to face martyrdom. The community that she's speaking to isn't merely experiencing inconvenience or a few insults thrown their way. They know that continuing to publicly cling to Jesus and to Jesus' people could mean death one day. The author of Hebrews has been spurring on her audience, using as strong of language as she can find to plead with them, practically shouting in her writing, "Don't turn away from your faith; it will all be worth it in the end." And in our passage today, she uses the strongest example she can find. 
She says, see for yourself. Look at Jesus. Jesus is the one who goes before us. Jesus is the one who points the way. Jesus is the one who shows us how to keep going. Jesus is the one who made it. Jesus is the one who endured for a purpose. Jesus is the one who received fullness of joy when his suffering was complete. And if all of that is true of Jesus, then it will be true of us too. The author of Hebrews calls Jesus the pioneer of our faith, the one who's paved the way and gone before us. Colossians 1.15 describes Jesus as the firstborn or the one who sets the example. 1 Corinthians 15.20-23 tells us Jesus is the first fruits of those who will be resurrected. And all of these passages teach us that where Jesus goes, we will go too. The text says that Jesus endured the cross because of the joy that was ahead. And we might ask, how on earth could an instrument of torture lead to joy? What was the joy that was ahead of Jesus? Well, it was us. The renewal of our hearts, a way opened for heaven and earth to meet. This is what motivated Jesus. This is what spurred him on. It was this realigning of all of creation with what had been heaven's divine purpose all along. Jesus didn't endure because of obligation. Jesus didn't endure because he needed to keep a divine rule. Jesus didn't endure to gain the favor of the Father. Jesus endured because of love. Only love could create joy when he made a way for us to be reunited. Only love could produce this kind of happiness when all was made right, knowing that we, his beloved image bearers, would experience the life he'd always intended. See, we all know that when we love deeply, we can endure just about anything. When we know that goodness and joy are coming, that is powerful motivation to keep going. Jesus knew that abundance was ahead, and because of that, he endured. Priscilla tells this community she's writing to to fix their eyes on Jesus. In fact, don't take your eyes off of him, she says, so that you can keep going too. Now, Priscilla's speaking to a very real weariness and despair that this group of believers was battling. Commentator Thomas Long says this community was paying a price for their faith, and this was taking a toll on their hope and on their endurance, and they were tired, tired of the struggle. And I wonder if some of you might be able to identify. I would imagine in this room some of you would say that's true of you too. Perhaps we aren't fearing for our lives as we live out our faith, but we may be suffering nonetheless. And that suffering might be great. There is a cost to following Jesus. We've been called to go where he goes. We've been called to see what he sees and to enter into the suffering of those around us. We've been called to the marginalized and those in distress. We've been called to the prisons and to the borders and to the hospitals and to the homeless camps and to those that no one wants to be around. And we've also been called to stay faithful to Jesus in our own struggles with sickness and mental health challenges and losses and the destruction of dreams. 
Thomas Long also says this powerful quote. He says, the cross is the heaviest piece of furniture to move, and Christians are charged with the considerable task of picking it up and carrying it every single day. Some of you might be weary today. Don't hear the author's words in Hebrews as dismissing or condemning your weariness. Hear it as an acknowledgement. You get to be weary today. Not everyone who finishes a race does it in one consistently paced run. Sometimes a runner has to slow down or even stop to catch her breath or to nurse an injury. Our passage today is not meant to tell you to keep pushing as hard and as fast as you can because your pace really doesn't matter. Finishing the race is what matters. This passage is meant to be like a water station along the raceway, giving you hydration to enable you to continue. Four years ago, exactly, I was walking 175 miles on the Camino de Santiago in Spain. The Camino is a pilgrimage that Christians have taken for hundreds of years. It takes you to a cathedral in Santiago where the Apostle James was buried. Now, every step of the Camino physically hurt for me. Um, this is because I had horrible blisters from day one, even though I did everything you're supposed to do to prevent and treat blisters. And so as a result, I walked very slowly. And I am not exaggerating when I say 80-year-old pilgrims were passing me as I walked on the Camino. Not an exaggeration. There were signs along the way that if you got too tired, you could call a car service, and they could take you to your next stop. And it was important that I make my stops every day because they were prearranged accommodations. So I had to hit my 12 to 16 miles every single day. But I never called those car services. I just walked more slowly, or I stopped more. I didn't stop my pilgrimage because the goal was not to get to Santiago quickly. In fact, I needed the time on the trail for reflection and prayer and soul-searching. The goal was to get as much out of that journey as I possibly could and to finish my walk. And I did. I stumbled into Santiago exhausted. I removed my shoes both for relief and for the acknowledgement of this holy moment that had just happened in my life. If you're weary today, take a moment to catch your breath. Acknowledge the tiredness. Allow yourself to feel seen by a loving Redeemer who's gone before you in this race. The one who promises to walk alongside you through the struggle until you finish. Because joy is ahead. Know that it is okay to slow down, even to take a break. Just don't withdraw. After all, Jesus said his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Priscilla desires for this body of believers to be strengthened in their very real struggle to live out their faith. More than anything, she wants them to keep going and to fix their eyes on Jesus. She wants them to see God as this heavenly parent who loves them and is involved in their lives and is actually using the suffering that they're in to train them for the race. Now, I want us to look at the next 10 verses of our passage, verses 4 through 13, and I want us to look at them with great caution. I think that the author is using a very easily misinterpreted illustration in this passage 
to explain the involvement of God in our suffering. Now, this passage is riddled with potential for harmful applications if it's taken literally and if it's applied to family relationships. To give you context as to why I feel strongly about this, most of my ministry has been focused on vulnerable people. And a great portion of those people have been through or are in abusive situations of some kind. So I'm passionate about this and I'm highly sensitized to it. I also know as a pastor that scripture has often been used to justify abuse And we need to understand how this passage could be used to do so, and also how it could present a harmful view of God if it's misinterpreted. If we were to look at most translations of this passage, we would first see exclusively male language. Most translations only use the word sons, and this passage only refers to fathers as parents. So that's one issue. The second is if we were to look at this passage in Greek, And if we took the proverb that Priscilla quotes in verses 5 through 6 and we looked at that passage in Hebrew, we would discover some pretty disturbing things. The word discipline that is quoted in Hebrews 12, 5 through 6 has a range of meaning in Greek. It can mean training, it can mean education as the version we read today highlights, or it can mean corporal punishment. The word chastises or chastens from Proverbs 3.11, which is quoted here, is even more problematic. It actually means to beat with a whip. Now, I have to tell you, this makes my stomach turn. And when Colin sent me this text as my text for today, I did not want to preach it. And this is why. But I think it's important that we don't explain this away, that perhaps I lead us a little bit in wrestling with it, because it's here in the text and we need to know what to do with it. We also need to do our best interpretive work to understand what the author is attempting to communicate here. To start, it's important we remember that all metaphors, analogies, and attempts to explain God in human terms fall short. None hold the entirety of truth, all of them are flawed. They're not all as flawed as this one, but they are all imperfect. We also need to remind ourselves that Priscilla has been using hyperbolic language throughout this entire book. She is trying to grab the attention of her listeners, and her language is not meant to be taken literally. It's not, it is meant to be seen for the extreme language it is. She's driving home a point. Now, she is a part of a time in history. She's a part of a culture in which violence was accepted. People were routinely punished physically, both adults and children, in the home and in society. She's using language people can understand and illustrating with a practice that's familiar to her audience. I wish she hadn't, but this is the example she uses because she believes it's going to communicate something important. Now, I think the real issue is not that Priscilla quotes Proverbs, but that Proverbs uses such language. Proverbs such as this one that she's quoting, comes from Proverbs 3.11, These have routinely been used by Christians to justify physically punishing their children. How often have we heard, well, the Bible says, spare the rod, spoil the child, so that is what we are supposed to do. And let me firmly say, Proverbs is not a discipline manual. Proverbs is not a how-to book. Proverbs is a book of accepted wisdom sayings in a specific time and cultural context. 
The author of Proverbs is also writing from a culture in which this was the accepted way to discipline, but that does not make it a mandate to parents today. We now have the privilege of years of research and study on the impacts of violence and physical discipline on children, and the results are not good. I've heard it said that most of the problems with violent crime in our society could be solved if we eliminated child abuse, and I think that is a valid point. Because what happens to children deeply shapes them as adults. So what does Priscilla mean here? Is she really advocating for a daddy-hits-me-because-he-loves-me view of God? Let's look back at the message, which I think really gets to the heart of the theology that she is trying to communicate. This is how the message words this section. Or have you forgotten how good parents treat children and that God regards you as his children? My dear child, don't shrug off God's discipline, but don't be crushed by it either. It's the child he loves that he disciplines, the child he embraces that he also corrects. God is educating you. That's why you must never drop out. He's treating you as dear children. This trouble you're in isn't punishment, it's training. The normal experience of children. Only irresponsible parents leave children to fend for themselves. Would you prefer an irresponsible God? We respect our own parents for training and not spoiling us, so why not embrace God's training so we can truly live? While we were children, our parents did what seemed best to them, but God is doing what is best for us, training us to live God's holy best. At the time, discipline isn't much fun. It always feels like it's going against the grain. Later, of course, it pays off big time, for it's the well-trained who find themselves mature in their relationship with God. So what the message does is it removes the idea of violence from the passage. That idea isn't necessary, and it hinders what I think the author is actually trying to say. The message translation helps us see that some of the suffering in the Christian life can be a tool that God uses for training and for teaching us as his children. Now, we all know children aren't born knowing boundaries, clearly understanding right from wrong, greed from sharing, kindness from meanness. They have to be taught these things. And a loving parent teaches. A loving parent instructs. An involved parent sets boundaries and allows appropriate consequences so that a child can learn. The goal is not punishment, the goal is growth. Now, none of this feels great to a child in the moment. My children don't enjoy boundaries I set or when I take something away. But we've all seen children who have no boundaries or limits, and it is not pretty. Children actually feel safer with limits. Appropriate, nonviolent consequences teach them something important. The author is saying that sometimes suffering is used in this way for us, a means of teaching, training, learning. That is not to say, though, that all suffering is construed by God to teach us something. Some suffering is the result of living in a fallen world. Some suffering is simply horribly the result of great evil. And some suffering is simply the result of our own decisions. There is suffering that God has nothing to do with sending into our lives. What the author is saying is that sometimes pain enters our lives because God wants to create something beautiful for us. Think of childbirth 
an experience painful and agonizing, and yet it brings new life into the world. Or something broken like an arm that has to be reset. I've heard that that's excruciating, and yet it's necessary for the bone to refuse and to heal. And we know that sometimes when things heal, it gets pretty uncomfortable in the process. And the author is saying, don't see that discomfort and struggling as simply suffering for its own sake. See it as a a sign of God's healing work in your life. That's the work of a good heavenly parent for his people. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The author of Hebrews wants this struggling community reading her sermon to be encouraged. She wants them to keep moving forward in the Christian life. She wants them to look to Jesus as their example of enduring for joy. And she wants them to see God as a good parent, redirecting our suffering to train us in ways we might not learn otherwise. Thomas Long, the commentator I quoted earlier, says this about the listeners to the sermon called Hebrews. He says, the author is concerned about those who slip quietly out the side door never to return. He's concerned about those who pour their lives into the offering plate but never receive the blessings. Those who have all the scars but none of the hope. The preacher's congregation, after getting up morning after morning and finding that the world of resistance and suffering has not gone away during the night, greets each new dawn, not with energy anymore, but with drooping hands and weak knees. This is who the author is speaking to. She wants her audience to look closely at Jesus and at the great joy that is ahead, because if it was true of Jesus, it is true of us. She wants her readers to see the purpose that can what, in what can feel like meaningless suffering and to be strengthened not to give up. Eric Little said, Circumstances may appear to wreck our lives and God's plans, but God is not helpless among the ruins. God's love is still working. He comes in and takes the calamity and uses it victoriously, working out his wonderful plan of love. And perhaps you can relate. Today, if your hands feel like they're drooping and your knees feel weak, can you turn your gaze back to Jesus? Are you able to take comfort in the companionship of the one who promises to walk alongside you until you can run again? The one who promises to be with you to the very end of the race. Could that be enough to help you take one more step for the joy that is set before you, a joy that Jesus has secured? My prayer is that it would be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
for them. That was beautiful. <laughs> All right, Sarah, I Ooh, you gave me the wobbly stool, Colin. <laughs> I apologize. These are hard. Okay, can you elaborate briefly on who Priscilla was? I'm glad somebody asked that because I don't think I did that last time either. That was my <laughs> oversight. Um, Priscilla was a valued coworker and friend of the Apostle Paul. Uh, she and her husband, Apollos, were pastors and leaders and teachers in the early church throughout Asia Minor. So she's called a co-laborer of Paul. She's actually the person who instructed Apollos, um, who some people think wrote Hebrews. Um, but Priscilla <laughs> was his teacher. <laughs> so that, she was a, a key leader in the early church. Thank you. What's the context of the trouble the audience is in? Mm -hmm. They're feeling punished or chastised by God. How or why? Persecution? Lots of questions yeah. there. Yeah, definitely persecution. They're under, under persecution regularly from the Roman Empire. They're anticipating that coming. Um, and I think sometimes for us that feels clear, like, okay, you're, you're suffering, you're in persecution, obviously God's going to guard you and guide you through that. But if you're in it, it can be very hard to see and discern the hand of God. How, how is God going to use this? How is God going to preserve me? And so it can feel like punishment. But I think the author is saying, no, like a good parent, God is actually going to use this to help you through. God's going to use this to strengthen you so that you have the muscles you need to make it to the end of the race. And last one, and in my opinion, the million-dollar question, how can we discern which struggles are God teaching us and which ones aren't, and how should we approach those differently? So discern would be the key uh, word in that question. Yeah. We have to discern it. And I think to discern, we need the community around us. We need people to help us discern that, people who know our lives and have watched our lives and are walking with us. Sometimes we need therapy to help us discern that. Um, and I think we approach it, though, in the same way in terms of trusting that even suffering we've created in our lives, suffering others have done to us, God can still and will reach into that suffering and redirect it for our good. And so I think the trust remains the same. But sometimes we do need the help of other people to discern where exactly that's coming from. That's super helpful. Thank you so much, yeah. Sarah, for answering these tough questions. And we have a ton more. Um, Colin will get to answer them tomorrow on Facebook Live. And pro tip, parents, there's a question about which scriptures can be used for parenting advice. So you might especially want to tune in.